welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, the podcast where we chat poetry, cassiography, and radiology in unequal parts. My name is Andrew Dixon, and joining me, anything above the clavicles is no stress to him, but venture below the clavicles and his adrenaline starts a pumping. It's my co host, Frank Gaylard. Oh, I tell you, below the clavicles is sore. We have a, uh, a house down by the beach. Well, the bank has a house down by the beach <laughs> that for 8% per annum, it's willing to let us use. And I went down there to get away from, uh, from my family, just me and the dog. Yeah. In the morning, I, I feed the dog some dry food with lots of water and it had rained overnight. And as I stepped down, there's about five steps leading down to the gravel outside. I slipped on the top step and uh, I felt really hard down all five steps and found myself crumpled on the bottom, covered in dog food and water, (laughs) thinking that I'd broken my arm. My phone was in the house and I was lying there thinking, this is how old people end up dying and getting eaten by their pets. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, at your age and Uh, with your degree of solitude, you should be carrying one of those duress alarms in case of these kind of situations. (laughs) I need to turn that on to the iWatch, I guess. Falls alert. (laughs) Uh, Well, you've completely missed my hint about today's topic in the intro there, Gayla, but that's okay. That You know, near-death experiences can really change one's perspective, so I'll let you off this time. Uh, Paragangliomas is the topic Ah, for today's Readful episode, and I was joined by Sally Ayessa for this one. As we'll learn, paragangliomas above the clavicles in the head Mm. and neck are parasympathetic paragangliomas, and they're non-secreting, so no adrenaline, dopamine, nor adrenaline. But the ones below the clavicles are sympathetic paragangliomas, and they secrete catecholamine. So that's what I was referring to with the adrenaline starting pumping when you go below the clavicles. Oh, yeah, I completely missed it. Wasn't paying attention. <laughs> it is a tradition in these readful episodes, Gaylord, to play a quick game of spot the fake. Are you up for it? Mm, I'll give sure. you. A, I'll give you a choice, mate. Do you want facts about actual paragangliomas, or do you want some random facts inspired by other elements of my chat with Sally? Let's definitely go random. Yeah. It'll be less embarrassing when I get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good theory. So one of these is fake, completely made up, and the other two are true. So statement number one, Hamlet, the play Mm -hmm. by William Shakespeare, gets a mention in this readful episode, Frank. Is it true that in the first printed copy of Hamlet, the line, to be or not to be, that is the question, was actually written as... To be or not to be, aye, there's the point. It sounds like a pirate. Aye, there is the point to <laughs> <Aye>. be hardies. <laughs> Statement two. Mm. Possums, the furry nocturnal marsupials, get a mention in this readful frank. Is it true that Australian possums are more closely related to opossums, marsupial species endemic to the Americas, than they are to other Australian marsupials like kangaroos, even though baby possums are called joeys. Mm. Combine two little things there. And then statement three, the final one. Eurydice, a nymph in Greek mythology, is mentioned in this readful Frank. Mm-hmm. She was... <laughs> Sounds like you talked about everything except paragangliomas. <laughs> is it true that she was the young wife of Orpheus who was killed one day after they married when she was bitten by a snake and Orpheus was totes devo, so he wandered into the underworld to plead with Hades for her return. Hades was like, yeah, sure, mate, as long as you don't look back while I conduct her back to the surface. But Orpheus looked back Mm -hmm. and she slipped away into the underworld. So, all right, so statement three, that last one, it mostly sounds right. You might have played Funny Buggers by mm-hmm. It's Not the Next Day. And <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it wasn't a snake, but it was an asp or something. So you're saying that's a true myth. I think statement <laughs> three is true. Statement two sounds like it should be wrong because we're mm-hmm. in Australia. Australia's been isolated for God knows how long. And just because the two words sound similar and both of them are tree rats. <laughs> Don't get me started on possums. You you thought the gamma rant was bad. (laughs) Um, That sounds like bollocks to me, but I can't believe that Hamlet was was a pirate. Having said that, I know that the Shakespearean plays, they weren't as set in stone 
in terms of the language as they are now. So I'm going to go that the possums is fake. All right, I'm going to take these in order. We've dismissed statement three already. You were correct with that one. That is the true myth about Eurydice. Uh, so statement one about Hamlet, uh, it's actually true. There is no mm. definitive text for Hamlet. Yeah, uh, there are two. Yeah, you've got it right. So there are two quattro text or quattro, which is a large sheet folded into quarters. Hence the name. Uh, so the two original quattros were published in the early 1600s, and then there was a folio text in 1623, and that mm. had the updated text in it. So the original did say, to be or not to be, aye, there's the point. And it actually <laughs> appeared at a different part of the play as well. That's like uh, Elaine Bennett from Seinfeld, where she, she gets convinced that War and Peace was originally titled War, what is a good war? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Classic. And did you know, I thought you might like this one as well, uh, Polonius was not Polonius in the original as well. Oh. He was called uh, Carambus. Mm. Huh. Uh, so that is courtesy of interestingliterature.com, that question. Mm, interesting. Okay, so don't blame me Indeed. if it's incorrect. And statement number two, so this was the possum's one. And uh, so that's not true. So you're right. Following the arrival of Europeans in Australia, the term possum was borrowed from the very, very distantly related American marsupials called opossums. The possums in Australia are far more closely related to other Australian marsupials, such as kangaroos. And yes, that's why they're called joeys, the little joey in the pouch. Um, do you want to guess the gestation period for a brush-tailed possum, Gaylord? The number of them that are in my garden is like 23 minutes. <laughs> it's actually really, really short. It is 17 days Oh wow. gestation. So all of these marsupials have pretty short gestation periods because obviously they come out very underdeveloped. There you go. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. So we're going to start learning about paragangliomas. I recorded this one yesterday with the always delightful Celia Yessa. Since hitting stop on the recording, Gaylad, I have actually consolidated my thoughts on paragangliomas and theochromocytoma mm -hmm. a little further. And so I'll chat through that with you when okay. we come back Sounds through good. the outro. But for now, let's listen in to the readful. Joining me now in the reading room, all the way from Sydney, Australia, it's radiologist, nuke med physician, radiopedia editor, PhD candidate, and let's make it official, one of the co-conveners for next year's Radiopedia 2024 virtual conference, it's Sally Ayessa. Welcome to the podcast, Sal. Thank you for having me. And it's very, very exciting to finally make it official. I've been doing my very best to keep the convener news under wraps, but I did let it slip last week to a group of scientists. So thankfully, they've kept their mouth shut and to not <laughs> blow the surprise. But what a fabulous way to do the official announcement. So thank you for having me. And I'm very excited today to be talking about our article. We did have a bit of a back and forward trying to work out which Radiopedia article to make the subject for this Readful episode. And we finally settled on paraganglioma. It has some interesting aspects to it, including a bit of nuke med. I think this is a bit of an interesting choice for us. The panels that we've done in the past or the conversations is usually about chest radiology, which is what we have in common. But as you say, nuclear medicine has a big role in the imaging of paragangliomas. I think the pharmaceutical options that we've had to assess this pathology has been growing and changing over the last few years. So it's a really interesting, interesting article to read through today. After listening to you and Frank's discussion a few weeks ago when the gamma rant, <laughs> which has become very famous, I think I deserve a bit of a right of reply. So <laughs> happy, to, happy to be here talking about nuclear. So let's not go there again. We've no. we've received emails. Uh, he even managed to offend the the very fine people of Bundaberg, which is in Queensland, Frank. Queensland, not in the oh Northern Territory, and it is not some backwater place, <laughs> as he described. Anyway, let's let's jump into it. So I'm going to read the paraganglioma article word yep. for word, pausing every now and then to get some insights from you and ask you a couple of my sneaky random questions if you're up for it. So oh my goodness. let's give it a go. Sounds great. Let's jump in. <laughs> so paragangliomas, sometimes called glomus tumors, are rare neuroendocrine tumors arising from paraganglia. That's the simple single sentence intro to the article, but I'm going to cut in straight here very early because I want to mention that the term glomus is actually a really outdated term when referring to paragangliomas. And really in our reports and in Radiopedia articles, we should be removing the glomus prefix from these tumors. So we shouldn't be saying glomus jugulare or glomus vagale. We should just be saying jugular paragangliomas and vagal paragangliomas. 
So I just thought I'd point that out up top. There is such a thing as a glomus tumor. It's like a mesenchymal tumor, modified smooth muscle from the glomus body, which you know typically occur in subungual locations in the fingers, but they are totally different from paragangliomas, Sally. And I think it's going to be a bit of a change because I'm so used to calling them glomus tumors, you know, glomus jugulares and vagalis. So mm-hmm. if I misstep today, make sure that you pull me up on it. When we were kind of thinking about this, I got a bit curious to start thinking about why we call them glomus tumors in the first place. And it seems to have something to do with the glomus cells that are in the carotid body, because as we'll find out, mm-hmm. this is a very common place for the paragangliomas to arise. And so that's probably where the term comes from. But um, I guess we'll do away from that for now. We'll do our best to stick with carotid body paraganglioma. Is that right? Did I get it right? That is correct. <laughs> Even if you do right. say glomus, always make sure you put paraganglioma at the end so that we're kind of transitioning towards using that terminology. And terminology is the next section of the article. Paraganglia are clusters of neuroendocrine cells dispersed throughout the body and closely related to the autonomic nervous system with either parasympathetic or sympathetic function. The largest cluster of cells is found in the adrenal medulla with smaller collections in the paravertebral space and head and neck region. Tumors arising in the paraganglia are called paragangliomas, and they are classified by both location and secretory function. Now, jumping away from the article here, chromaffin is a word that doesn't appear in that paragraph, but I think deserves a bit of a shout out because it sounds cool. Uh, So paragangliomas arise in the neural crest tissue, um, which can differentiate into either parasympathetic or sympathetic cells. And the sympathetic ones, usually in the chest and abdomen, are called chromaffin cells, and they secrete the catecholamines, so like adrenaline or epinephrine. Whereas the parasympathetic ones, which are in the head and neck, uh, they are non-chromaffin paragangliomas, and they don't secrete catecholamines. Chromaffin, awesome word. Awesome word. And I think it's also worth kind of jumping in here as well, just to underline that paragangliomas are going to occur in the location of those autonomic nervous um, structures. So anatomy is so important when assessing these lesions and particularly in the head and neck. And someone who's a bit of a head and neck novice, such as myself, like I do a bit more in nukes than I do in radiology. I find that thinking about the anatomy is really, really useful with those spaces. So we know that cranial nerves nine and 10 have that autonomic function. Therefore, we find paragangliomas arising from the ganglia along the course of these nerves. So it kind of all links in together. And I'll throw in a bit of a good pearl from when I was a registrar as well, thinking about masses, particularly really big ones, is that if you can work out where it is, you have a better chance of working out what it is when you're forming your differential diagnosis lists. And particularly with these head and neck paragangliomas, it really is location, location, location. Let's move on to the next section. So this is epidemiology. So sporadic paragangliomas are typically diagnosed between the ages of 30 to 50 and predominantly affect women with a female to male ratio of three to one. In contrast, hereditary type paragangliomas are usually diagnosed at a younger age with an equal male to female ratio. Uh, And then we're going to move on to associations. So hereditary paragangliomas are most commonly associated with succinate dehydrogenase mutations. This reminds me of medical school, something to do with the citric acid cycle. That's all I know. (laughs) And they are also associated with four clinical syndromes. So we have four syndromes that are associated with paragangliomas listed here. The first one is von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, a classic. We could do a readful episode just on that, Sally. Yeah, next time. (laughs) Yeah. So pheochromocytomas occur in 25 to 30% of patients who have von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, uh, and they also get extra adrenal pheochromocytomas and paragangliomas in 15%. Uh, The next syndrome we have listed is multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, so 2A and 2B, and they get pheochromocytomas in 50% of patients and they're often bilateral. The third syndrome listed is neurofibromatosis type 1, and then a rarer one, the fourth one, is Carney Statakis syndrome and Carney triad. I can't say I've heard of that one before, Sally. I've heard of Carney triad, but Carney stratakis syndrome, that's something new for me. So we're all learning today, it seems. So these ones, you'll see that the von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, neurofibromatosis type 1 and the MEN type 2, they all most commonly are associated with the pheochromocytoma type of paraganglioma, so those chromaffin type uh, tumours. And then it goes on to say SDH, so succinate dehydrogenase mutations are common in head and neck paragangliomas, except for SDHB, which is associated with sympathetic paragangliomas. And SDHB also confers a higher risk of 
malignancy. And these SDSH mutations, they're pretty rare. And actually, I'd never heard of them until I started working in nuclear medicine as a senior resident, which was about 10 years ago. Um, And it isn't necessarily as as above, it's not a syndrome as such, like neurofibromatosis is, but it's more about the mutation in that gene, which then increases the risk of developing a paraganglioma. So SDH is made up of A, B, C, and D subunits. And then depending on where the mutation is within um, those components, then that's how the disease will manifest. And mm-hmm. I remember, I believe it was an SDHD patient who came in um, for a dotatate pet, and we'll get to dotatate a little bit later. And then interestingly, his sister came in a couple of weeks later. So you can see that these mutations do run in families. And what was interesting about one of the cases was that there was a large paraganglioma higher in the neck. It might have been a jugular paraganglioma, don't quote me, it was quite a while ago. But then when we kept looking, you could see that there was a tiny hotspot at the carotid bifurcation as well, telling us that there was a second paraganglioma. And so with these mutations, you can get multiple. Um, and that's can, is the same for the syndromes as well. So, you know, de novo, you will probably find one if there's a, if you, there's a bit of bad mm-hmm. luck. But if you've got multiple, they're usually associated with a genetic mutation or a syndrome. Yeah. And I think overall with paragangliomas, 25% of cases are multiple. So if you find one, it's definitely worth looking for another. And it usually does indicate that there's some hereditary thing in the background. Yeah. And I guess then in a broader sense, um, when prepping to to have this chat in the podcast today, we were having a look at the 2021 consensus guidelines. And really the main kind of screening recommendation is MRIs for these patients with a known syndrome or genetic mutation. Mm -hmm. And that that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's no radiation with MRI, something like a PET scan or a CT. You don't want to be having multiple serial scans because, you know, accumulation of radiation over time. But that said, you know, we're guided by our referrers. And if a patient potentially might have multiple in different parts of the body, then something like a PET scan can be really valuable because you image the whole body in a single investigation or maybe maybe alternate that with an MRI or use the PET as a problem-solving investigation. Uh, So let's move on to the next section before we take a little break. So this one is clinical presentation. So sympathetic paragangliomas present with features of catecholamine excess, such as headaches, palpitations, diaphoresis, and hypertension. So getting your adrenaline going. Whereas parasympathetic paragangliomas present more commonly with mass effect, such as cranial nerve palsy, a neck mass, or tinnitus. That brings us to the end of the first section of this article. Before we move on to pathology, which is a largish, largish kind of section, let me break things up a little by asking you one of my famous random questions. Sal, are you up for it? I'm, I am up for it. I'm slightly <laughs> nervous, but, but I'm, I'm up for it. Let's go. Let's go. This is an easy one to start with. Okay. So do you have a favorite radiology word or phrase? Oh, that's not an easy question. That's a really hard question. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> no, like I actually, I have, I definitely have a few least favorite phrases and oh, one yeah. thing Let's hear that those. I, I really don't like is lung fields and especially when we get a new registrar coming through and they're putting oh, the lung fields are clear and I'm just like oh no no don't say lung fields just because when I was a junior registrar I had one of my consultants said to me I, I put it in a report and she said Sally come over here tell me do you see cows in these fields Sally and I'm like no no there are no cows and she's like don't use fields there are no fields there's no grass and I'm like okay all right the lungs are clear so keep it nice and simple um yep. and another one that I I, I find Actually, since I've become a consultant is the word prominent. My registrars love prominent. I think about prominent to say, look, it caught my eye. So it's something that caught my eye, but it's not necessarily a pathology, just something I'm noting. And, you know, we can, you know, clinically correlate or whatever we need to do. But they love saying mildly prominent. And when I think about that, it's like, well, how can something catch your eye just a little bit? How could it mildly catch your eye? Like either it does or it doesn't. And um, so I, I, they, I, I hear it a lot when we're talking about cerebral ventricles, so ventricular caliber. So, you know, I, I just say stick with mildly enlarged. And if you really need to say prominent, say prominent. Don't say mildly prominent. It's a bit of a hedge, isn't it? The other non-committal word or phrase that I do kind of like is um, a degree of. Oh, um, no, I use that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when someone says, you know, this mass causes a degree of displacement of the adjacent vessel. So you don't really say, you know, a large amount or a small amount, you say it's a degree of, and sometimes you use that when you kind of don't know the significance of it. It's kind of like, well, there's a degree of this, but uh, I'm not sure whether it's 
a big thing or a little thing? So I'm just oh, going to no. say a degree of. You're seeing into my soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. I tend to use it as a bit of throat clearing sometimes when you can see the, the cogs turning, me trying to work out. But yeah, okay. Next time I use that, I'll think of you and delete it and try to a better word. <laughs> no, no, I actually use it. I, th- I think it can be good in certain settings. And have you got a favorite phrase? I do. I love you know, the beauty of radiology. And one um, term that I really like is when we describe something as arboreal, like, and we did this oh, yeah. back at the recent conference talking in the nuclear medicine session, you know, strong recommendation if you want to catch it on the replay. Very good session, yes. <laughs> when we were talking about um, amyloid PET and um, the pattern of the white matter and it, the normal pattern on a florbetaben PET looking for Alzheimer's disease is you get this beautiful branching pattern and then you lose that pattern when um, there's pathology. So arboreal like the trees. And it also makes me think a little bit about the bronchovascular structures of the lungs mm. and how it branches out. So arboreal is probably my favorite radiology descriptor. It is a cool word. It reminds me that we are currently in the process of evicting, I think that's the right term, evicting a possum from our roof. (laughs) (laughs) And that's an arboreal animal that I would, yeah, that's been keeping me up at night at the moment. For people who live overseas who don't have problems with possums, in in Melbourne in particular, there's a lot of possums. And for some reasons, even though they are arboreal, they don't like to sleep in the trees. They like to sleep in your house (laughs) and make a whole lot of noise. That's it. When I was growing up, we had a brush-tail possum in our roof and it lived there for ages. And for the overseas people, brush-tail possums are like the size of a large cat. Like they're quite big big animals. And at one point, yeah, they are annoying. It lived there for so long and then they got some water in and the whole roof collapsed into my living room when I was like five or six and just there was possum detritus absolutely everywhere so yeah it's a real Australian problem so (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this is this is a big brushy, and we had a guy around yesterday, and he climbed up on our roof, and he closed off the spot. So you're not allowed to kill a possum; you have to kind of evict it. And what you do is you kind of cover over the hole, and then they leave a little trapdoor so Aww. that the possum can come out of the roof in uh, you know the nighttime and go out. But then when they come back, the trapdoor is closed, and they can't get back into your roof. And then they have to find somewhere else to live. They've been Aww, evicted. I- I hope that he or she finds a nice warm home that isn't your roof. <laughs> There's plenty of, plenty of places around. Uh, I've got some neighbours that I would love the possum to move in with. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next section. So this is pathology. So all paragangliomas consist of two types of cells, type 1 and type 2. That's easy. The main components are lobules or nests of chief cells. So those are the type 1 cells, chief cells. And these structures are known as zellballen. They are surrounded by a single layer of sustentacular cells. So they're the type 2 cells. Uh, And histologically, there are no reliable markers of malignant potential, unfortunately. So the pathology section is then broken down into location, and we already said that location, 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 really important with these. And then the first uh, location is for the parasympathetic paragangliomas, and then we'll move on to the sympathetic paragangliomas. So parasympathetic paragangliomas arise within paraganglia of the head and neck in association with the branches of the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerve, as Sally pointed out earlier. They are generally non-secretory, so non-chromaffin. So we've got them listed here, and we're going to kind of go through some of the features of them as we go through because um, because I think it's it's useful. It's not in the article itself, but we'll uh, we'll add them in because we can't go and look at every article individually in this readful episode. So the first one is the carotid body paraganglioma, and this is the most common paraganglioma. Uh, so you get that classic splaying of the carotid bifurcation, ICA and the ECA get separated, and it's known as the the liar sign. And a lyre, if, if you haven't come across one before, it's a musical instrument. It's like a little sh- little harp where the kind of the bows of the harp that come up where the strings are between is like a U-shape. And so it resembles the way that the ICA or the internal carotid artery and the external carotid artery curve around the tumour and it splays them out wide as it curves around the ovoid or the round tumour that's sitting between yeah. them. Classic angiogram appearance, and it's spelt L-Y-R-E, um, but it reminds me of this great line from the musical Hades Town. I don't know whether you've seen that one, Sally. When Orpheus is trying to pick up Eurydice um, with his beautiful singing, she says, oh, you're a singer. Is that what you are? And he's like, well, I also play the lyre. And she, and she has this awesome comeback. She's like, Oh, a liar and a player too. I've met too many <laughs> met too many men like you. Oh my 
goodness. It's an awesome line. I'll try and I'll try and track it down and play it at the end of this podcast. Oh, fantastic. It's a, it's a cool musical worth checking out. Okay. Add it, adding it to the watch list. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is the jugulotympanic paraganglioma. Uh, so this arises from Arnold's nerve. So jugulotympanic paragangliomas, they involve the middle ear and the jugular foramen, and they extend supralaterally into the floor of the middle ear cavity. And um, similar to what we'll see with the um, the jugular paraganglioma coming up next, you can get this per- pattern of almost like a permeative destruction along the supralateral margin of the jugular foramen, and that's in the bone, um, which mm. is a really good clue that this is what you are looking at. Yeah, because these are really hypervascular tumors that's why they tend to cause this kind of permeative erosion of the bone adjacent to them uh, as opposed to a differential in this location which would be a schwannoma which tends to smoothly remodel the bone it can be a little bit tricky as well because often we use the word permeative to talk about an aggressive neoplastic bone lesion Mm. it's just if you do see it around the jugular foramen just think that it's not always going to be something malignant but i guess that's just you know look at the imaging findings and keep that in the back of your head yeah, it's whether that you know, is the lesion centred in the bone or is it centred adjacent to the bone and is eroding the adjacent bone. That's kind of the distinction there. Location, uh, location, The next location. one on the list is glomus jugulare paraganglioma. So here we've got the term glomus still in our article. Uh, so these are just ones that are centred at the jugular bulb, right? When I was going back through my notes as well, I noticed that I said that they can um, arise from Arnold's nerve, which we saw with our jugulotympanic and paraganglioma, but also Jacobson's nerves, who we'll come across in a moment. And you're right, it's just that epicenter. So they're at the jugular bulb. They're still going to give that permeative pattern um, of destruction of bone, particularly in advanced cases. And interestingly, because of where they are, you can match the clinical presentation, which is neuropathy of the um, the ipsilateral, so same side, 9th, 10th, and 11th cranial nerves. And that's because they sit within the jugular foramen as well. Interestingly, you get variable involvement of the 12th nerve, and that's because it often sits in a, it, will, it will sit in a different foramina quite close by, but not mm-hmm. necessarily um, as closely related as the 10th and 11th nerves are. I always remember the, the beautiful MRI sign that you get one half of the tongue on T2 is very mm-hmm. bright from the fatty atrophy. If, is that, yep. that's, that's cranial nerve 12, isn't it? That's hypoglossal palsy, yeah. So you yes. get this slumping back of the, of the tongue and you get this, yeah, fatty atrophy, or even even when it's acute, you don't get the fatty atrophy, but you just get this denovation edema, this T2 hyperintensity. And that I had one recently, which wow. was confused for a base of tongue mass, and I was reporting the MRI. It was actually due to a carotid dissection that mm-hmm. they didn't know about, and that caused this hypoglossal palsy. But clinically, they thought base of tongue mass, MRI prior to biopsy. I'm reporting the MRI and I'm like, oh my God, this is a carotid dissection. This is a pseudomass. This wow. doesn't need a biopsy. I call them up and you know, I was reporting a scan. It was performed, you know, five days earlier. And I call them up and I'm going, we're just trying to prevent an unnecessary biopsy here. And they said, oh, is this on blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we did that two days ago. Oh, it was negative. No. And I'm like, oh gosh. Oh, well. Oh, well. At least That's it's why reassuring. you've got to stay up to date with your reporting. Exactly. <laughs> So the next one on the list here is the glomus tympanicum paraganglioma, so the tympanic paraganglioma. This is Jacobson's nerve and they sit at the cochlear promontory. That's the buzzword. But yes, cochlear promontory. Pop it into your mind and keep that for your examinations or to you know pimp your reports. Um, but it's basically you're looking for a round mass with a flat base overlying that cochlear promontory. Yeah, so this is in the middle ear cavity itself and so therefore because these are very hypervascular tumors they often present with pulsatile tinnitus if they're symptomatic the next one on the list is glomus vagale paraganglioma but we know we're going to start calling those vagal paragangliomas instead and remember the vagus nerve sits at the posterior aspect of the carotid arteries in the carotid space and somewhat medial to the internal jugular vein so classically a vagal lesion so you can have vagal schwannomas and you can have vagal paragangliomas that will classically displace the internal carotid artery and the external carotid artery anteriorly but they'll stay together those two vessels as opposed to the carotid bodies which splay them apart and the internal jugular vein is often pushed kind of laterally sometimes a bit posterolaterally and I, when I was checking back through my notes again, so I was making sure I, I well prepared so I could say some sensible things in this um, in the podcast, I wrote down the four Ps. So painless, pulsatile, posterolateral, and pharyngeal mass will allow you to kind of come down on a vagal paraganglioma. I've got some extra tips when we get to the imaging section for those ones. Uh, and then the final one is the laryngeal paraganglioma. Now, these are rare. 
so rare that there's none on Radiopedia and I've never seen one. So uh, if you have one, please share it to Radiopedia. <laughs> I don't have one either. So yeah. yeah, I'd love to see the case if, if one does pop up. Yeah, I think exceedingly rare would probably be a correct term for that one. So that's the parasympathetic paragangliomas in the head and neck. And then the second section we're going to talk about is the sympathetic paragangliomas. So sympathetic paragangliomas generally arise in paraganglia below the level of the neck. They tend to secrete catecholamines and can be intra or extra adrenal. Okay, so the extra adrenal ones, these arise outside the adrenal gland, obviously, along the length of the sympathetic chain. And in the abdomen, this can be associated with the organ of Zucker candle and the bladder base. And in the thorax, so mediastinal paragangliomas, these can be in a few different locations. They can be paravertebral. So this is the aortosympathetic paraganglia. They can be uh, associated with the great vessels, so the aortopulmonary paraganglia. And rarely they can be cardiac along the epicardium in the atrial cavity, in the interatrial septum, or even in the ventricles. And then the next one is the intraadrenal location, which we all know about. They arise within the adrenal medulla and they are the pheochromocytomas. Can I, can I ask, is it too late to add organ of Zucker candle to my favorite radiology words list? Like it's such a, it's such a great one, isn't it? <laughs> it and, is a very cool yeah, word. It is. And so that, that's one of those other chromaffin bodies and it's found at the bifurcation of the aorta and, or at the origin of the inferior mesenteric artery in the abdomen. Do you know what Zucker candle means? It means an inverted candle, an upside down candle that you put on the ceiling. Is that right? No, I made that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no such thing as upside down candles. They don't work. Oh my goodness! Something to do with something to do with gravity. You just get waxed on your head. The way heat, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I don't think they'd even burn. No, no, it's named after a person, Emil Zucker candle, an Austrian anatomist and pathologist. And Thought I'd catch you out with that no, one. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was waiting for it, and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I was trying to work out the physics in my head, but um. So, so we'll, we'll throw in a little bit of extra clinical information. And what I kind of remember about these bladder-based paragangliomas is we we were investigating for one kind of in the bladder-based and prostate back when I was doing my nuclear medicine advanced training. But they can be associated with these micturition attacks. So they get catecholamines that are secreted when you empty the bladder, and you can get episodes of hypertension palpitations but alarmingly you can get micturition syncope which is when you empty your bladder and you lose consciousness which that must Mm. be quite frightening i think for a patient and also a bit of a tricky one to sort out i think you don't want that um the next section here sally moving quickly away from the (laughs) micturition is the immunophenotype So immunohistochemical examination confirms neuroendocrine differentiation of chief cells. So they're the type 1 cells. Uh, And it has a few things listed here. It says neuron-specific NLA, so NSE, uh, chromogranin A, and synaptophysin. I'm having fun with these words. And then the sustentacular cells, so those type 2 cells, they can have uh, S100 differentiation and GFAP. I remember that one from the brain. That's to do with glial cells. The next section is genetics. So paragangliomas are the most strongly hereditary group of tumors. The most common genetic cause of hereditary paragangliomas are mutations in the succinate dehydrogenase subunit, which we learned about earlier. Uh, So SHB, SHD, SHA, and SHAF2. Gosh, it's a bit of a mouthful with all these genetics, isn't it? Yeah, look, I think we need a little bit of a break before we move on to the radiographic features. I've, I've had enough of reading those kind of things. Uh, so it's time for another random question, Sally. Oh, my goodness. Drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I'm not sure if I've used this one before. I think someone threw one of these in in an episode before um, off, off their own bat. But do you have a favourite quote? I have a couple, but I'll I'll pick the one that is printed on the wall in my office where I'm recording the podcast, which is, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And that is from Hamlet, from Hamlet speaking with his friend Horatio um, while he's milling things over, so to speak. You know, Mm. Hamlet was a pretty, you know, a pretty intense play. A lot happened in this young prince's life that um, certainly turned things upside down. So a lot of philosophy. I always have a tendency to put my own kind of science scientific bent on quotes uh, when people say them to me, uh, including this one. But um, do you do that as well? Oh, yeah. And what what do you take 
um, from this quote in particular that makes it um, your favourite? You know, like I love this quote so much because it, it kind of seems to change meaning depending on how you look at it or even depending on what mood you're in. Like it, it's just something that I, I find like I, I come back to so much. And like I love how it captures that there's so much in our world that we don't yet understand and things that we aren't really capable of understanding. And, you know, to think about from a professional standpoint as a medical student as a radiology trainee and even as a radiologist I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to know um, that all to know all there is about some particular pathology mm-hmm. and we know even though we know deep down that this is completely impossible and so you know I like to try and keep that to give myself a bit of perspective yeah but even more scientifically like I was reading an essay for, or actually listening on audible to an essay from Joan Didion last week where she was talking about being diagnosed with MS in the 60s and she's a great Californian essayist and journalist and so um she published a few books in the 70s and um mm-hmm. 60s on life in California and she was diagnosed with MS but at this point it was a diagnosis of exclusion so she'd gone through a whole rigmarole of different things and at the end of the day they said well it's probably MS but now if you're even suspicious patients will get an MRI but that was just something that was not even dreamt of in terms of regular clinical practice in the 60s yes they were developing MRI but it wasn't part of the the regular landscape and it's just really interesting to think how in you know 50 years you know how Mm. what are we going to have that we perhaps didn't even dream of today to help us in radiology and medicine in general and imagine back in Shakespeare's time. Oh my gosh! Know, the yes. changes that have occurred since then. Yeah, so it's it is amazing that there's always more more to learn and change. Exactly. And the other the kind of thing I think about as well, because I do a lot of kind of musing about workplace culture, and you know, which is why I love Radiopedia Conference Day Five. Just throwing in a little bit of a plug there, is that we <laughs> we think about you know how I think about how this quote kind of resonates with the more contemporary quote from Grace Hopper that the most dangerous phrase in the English language is "We've always done things this way," and so you're mm. thinking about you know the breadth of what we don't know, but you know being stuck with how we've always done things for for comfort or fear or whatever reason it may be. And I'm really a firm believer about how we should be questioning how we do things and keeping an open mind about culture and what our place should be within it and, you know, breeding into innovation and improving what we do every day for our patients and for our practice. Yeah, Frank was talking about this kind of concept recently, the idea of, you know, you, you notice things and you ignore them mm-hmm. rather than complaining about them because you don't want to be seen as a complainer. Yeah. But actually, you know, the, the, that stigma associated with the word complain, we really need to kind of drop it in certain contexts because a lot of the time what you're seeing is an issue that can actually be resolved if you just verbalise it. Sometimes you do need to complain. Oh. Um, now, when you said a quote from Hamlet, <laughs> um, I it reminded me that in medical school I actually wrote and we performed a play for the for the med school and it had a lot of stuff that was inspired by Hamlet. Oh, my goodness. I won't get into the details, but let's just say <laughs> that Horatio's name oh, was no. changed to a word that uh, rhymes with Horatio and maybe <laughs> some kind of sexual act, Sally. Oh, my goodness. I won't say it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, this was 2002. It was a different time. And you'll be glad to hear that the video recording is very, very poor. Oh, gosh. Um, if anyone still has one out there, then please do burn it for me. <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm in two minds. Do I want to see this or I just never want to see this? I think, I think I'll err on the latter option. Just pretend, to, you know, I, I, I think if I say too much, I'll probably get myself in trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, we better move on to finish off this Readful episode with the radiographic features. So both anatomical and functional imaging of paragangliomas is required for diagnosis and staging. Anatomical imaging includes CT and MRI and multiple functional imaging modalities exist and then they've listed heaps of letters here which all relate to nuclear medicine and PET scanning. So we'll skip those because we're going to come back to them. So CT and MRI are the initial imaging modalities for tumour localization. They have excellent sensitivity but lack specificity in unequivocally identifying a mass as a paraganglioma. So CT, a lot of these features on imaging will be different depending on the location. This is just a general article, so keep that in mind as we go through. So CT, the density greater than 10 Hounsfield units on non-contrast imaging helps differentiate from an adenoma. So this is specifically when we're talking about an adrenal lesion, so pheochromosotoma. Avidly enhances with contrast with delayed washout due to rich capillary network. 
avidly enhancing reminds me um, a trauma CT. They'd done a CT angiogram looking for blunt cerebrovascular injury. And there was this at the carotid bifurcation, this hyper densities, hyper enhancing area. And the trauma doctors are really concerned that there was a dissection with a pseudo aneurysm oh, there, wow. but it was actually a tiny little paraganglioma. So a little carotid body tumor. Look at that radiology that adding value into these cases. Yeah, it was great. And they were amazed. They were like, oh my God, you guys are so clever. I'm like, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for CT, it says they can detect lesions of 0.5 centimeters in diameter. So yeah, it's good for spotting small lesions. Uh, and it causes, as we said earlier, a permittive type of bone erosion when adjacent to a bone, such as within the jugular foramen. Uh, so moving on to MRI, so T1 signal, hypo-intense to liver and adrenal, uh, salt and pepper appearance due to small hemorrhages producing intrinsic T1 hyperintensity, so that's the salt, and hypo-intense signal from vascular flow voids, so that's the pepper. So that's particularly in the head and neck, that's one of the classic kind of things we talk about is that salt and pepper appearance of these tumours. To be honest, I don't see the T1 hyperintensity that often. I think the hemorrhage is pretty uncommon, but we definitely see the flow voids. That's a really important feature. So that, that, that pepper is definitely something to look out for and helps you distinguish from other lesions like schwannomas, which don't have the pepper. T2 signal is the next section. So they're T2 hyperintense. And it says here, light bulb appearance, which has been described for the adrenal theochromocytoma. Definitely in the head and neck, these paragangliomas are T2 hyperintense as well. But I don't think that actually helps you necessarily differentiate it from other things because schwannomas are also very, very T2 hyperintense as well. One thing that I do find useful in addition to the flow voids is that you know, larger schwannomas tend to get cystic degeneration within them, um, whereas paragangliomas don't tend to so much. So if you're seeing a large kind of cystic component uh, and there's not so much um, flow voids associated with it, then I would probably favour a lesion to be a schwannoma and obviously smooth remodelling of the bone. Next section is T1 post-contrast. So these lesions are heterogeneous and they show strong prolonged enhancement and this actually reminds me we don't have a section of for angiogram on this article sally but it reminds me of the angiogram appearance it's similar to actually what we use for the um, meningiomas you know the so-called you know that mother-in-law pattern described you know where the enhancement you know kind of arrives early and stays late much like (laughs) a mother-in-law but perhaps it should just be in-law sign rather than mother-in-law because um you know father-in-laws hang around too in my experience yes. and I'm, I'm, I'm all, you know me you know i'll wax lyrical on you know gender gender diversity and i'm very happy to create a gender neutral and very inclusive term so we can have in-laws rather than mother-in-law versus father-in-law yeah. so let's still let's offensive involve... to in-laws but, but, but everybody but both genders yeah exactly <laughs> we're, we're inclusive here at radiopedia <laughs> And I kind of also throw in here, like you mentioned the case of the DSA as well. And the case that's attached to this, I think it's even a legacy case that Frank uploaded. It's really quite beautiful. It almost looks like, you know, like a bird's nest that's just kind of hanging off the vessels Mm. with that, that increased vascularity. And yeah, they're very, very pretty, pretty studies. Speaking of something looking like a bird's nest, let's move on to nuclear medicine. Ah, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But before we start this section, it does contain a lot of random letters like MIBG and dotatate, things I don't understand. So how about instead of me reading it out, Sally, I throw the reins over to you and uh, you can read out this section. Oh, thank you, Dixon. I would be honoured to read out the nuclear medicine (laughs) section. Um, I'm just going to sit back and relax. (laughs) So I will say before we get started, though, there is really great variability in the traces that you used, and that depends on clinical circumstances and your geography. And the radiopharmaceuticals that we use in Australia on a regular basis may not be used somewhere else, like in the UK or the US. Mm -hmm. And I found that just actually through connecting with others, um, nuclear medicine physicians on Radiopedia, that we often do things just a little bit differently with the same kind of clinical question in mind. So if you are listening and you do have something that you think is a paraganglioma or you want to image it, I suggest getting in touch with your friendly nuclear medicine team and then ask them the clinical question and they'll be best um, suited to guide you about what the Mm -hmm. appropriate test is. So let's jump in. So reading from the article, um, so the targets for functional imaging are tumor-specific catecholamine production, including um, I123MIBG, 
sorry, it's my dog. Oh. She's scratching. <laughs> so I'm trying to keep her quiet. So she's like a possum. She is like a possum. <laughs> so, um, so starting with targets for functional imaging, there are tumor-specific catecholamine productions, which is I-123, MIBG, F18, FDA, and F18 DOPA. Glucose, which we image with F18, FDG. I'm so sorry. She's there's, excited. There's, She's uh, excited. She, she, I reckon she waited for this nuke med section. She did. She was like, I know, he's going to throw over to Sally for this section. <laughs> <laughs> Let me make a ruckus. She's been a rat, but she's been good for an hour. But now she's just like, every time I bark, you give me a treat. Now I'm going to bark. Oh, damn. Now she's tormenting the old man. So we'll, we'll plow on. So, <laughs> so the second one is glucose um, analogs, which is F18 FDG, which is the most common pet tracer that you've probably heard of. And then looking mm-hmm. at very specific somatostatin receptors, including gallium 68 dotatate, because somatostatin is overexpressed in paragangliomas. So in my practice, we pretty much exclusively use gallium-68 dotatate, and we have been for over 10 years now. Um, before that, we used MIBG, which is on a general nuclear medicine camera, but the iodine-123 that we use is expensive to source in Australia, and the spatial resolution is actually inferior to dotatate. Um, um, spatial resolution and um, signal to background is much better on PET compared to general nukes where they use a single photon. We do use FDG in some cases. In my practice, we most commonly use it if we're concerned that a paraganglioma has undergone malignant transformation. Paragangliomas are typically FDG avid, but the degree of uptake is variable and it's typically less intense for the more benign paragangliomas compared to something more specific like dotatate where we're targeting a receptor within the lesion mm-hmm. itself. But if there is malignant transformation, the FDG uptake is usually higher as it's reflecting the increased metabolism as that tumour de-differentiates. So coming back to the article, each modality has its strengths and weaknesses in detecting lesions and depending on their location, secretory function and underlying genetic mutation. For iodine-123 MIBG scintigraphy, the strengths are pheochromocytomas and extraadrenal sympathetic paragangliomas. And I'll add in there from my perspective, we used to use this for MIBG, um, MIBG imaging for pediatric neuroblastomas. And the weaknesses are head and neck and malignant disease. Moving on to F18 dopa pet. I haven't used this for um, paragangliomas, but if the strengths are listed as head and neck paragangliomas, SDHD mutations and non-metastatic disease and the weaknesses, interestingly, are a different type of mutation, so SDHB. So this is a bit of a newer pharmaceutical. I've only got limited experience with this in Australia, but there is a role as it's based on dopamine, but in Parkinson's Mm -hmm. disease. And also I've used this to help diagnose an insulinoma in a neonate once, which was a really great study. So, you know, a lot of problem solving there. F18 FDA PET, the strengths are metastatic disease and non-metastatic pheochromocytomas, um, and its weakness is limited clinical availability. And I would echo that. I haven't used it clinically myself. Next is F18 FDG PET. Its strength is use in malignancy, um, as we said before, SDHB mutations, von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, and the weakness may lack specificity. And that's just because we're looking at a glucose analogue and a whole lot of different pathologies, including infection, inflammation, and neoplastic causes can demonstrate increased FDG uptake. So you really got to kind of know what you're looking at um, and pair it with different um, imaging modalities like MRI, CT, or another PET tracer. Interestingly, as we saw before, the SDH mutations are reported to have higher uptake and avidity compared to paragangliomas, which arise de novo without the mutation. And finishing up, uh, we'll read from Gallium 68 Dotatate PET. Strength is overall um, viable imaging modality, proven superiority in sporadic disease and SHDB mutations, head and neck lesions, and the weaknesses is detection of liver and lung lesions as listed in the article. But that said, I haven't really come across a lot of cases of metastatic paraganglioma, and we use Dotatate PET a lot for metastatic small bowel or pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, and usually... We don't have too much trouble looking for lung and liver lesions. Maybe this is due to the fact that there is some background avidity um, and liver uptake in these particular scans. But if you window it and you're with an experienced eye, usually you can you can work it out pretty pretty well. I think it's a great tracer, and which is why we use it a lot. It sounds like yeah, Dotatate is your kind of go to one, but it really depends on on where you're working and also maybe information about the the background and mutation and, and mm. what you're kind of looking for. So it yeah. seems like Unique Med is very very 
useful, but you need to consult with your local local practice to, to work out which which is best. It's interesting though that you've got that kind of three approaches, right? You've kind of got the based on the catecholamines, you've got based on just basically use of glucose for the FDG, and then you've got your, you know, somatostatin receptor. So those kind of three ways of trying to find the lesion and then multiple different tracer types for for exploiting that. Now, let me finish this whole session off with a, a brief section, treatment and prognosis. I'm going to skip over the differential diagnosis section because remember, this is really a general article on paragangliomas and most of the treatment, in fact, and the differential diagnosis information is covered in the specific articles for each paragangloma. So treatment and prognosis, treatment may include surgical resection or radiotherapy. Malignancy, we're talking about this a moment ago, so is defined as evidence of metastases and the most common sites for metastases are the lymph nodes, liver, lung, and bone. And the risk of malignant paraganglioma for pheochromocytomas, it's 10%. For sympathetic paragangliomas uh, outside of the adrenal gland, that's 20%. And for parasympathetic paragangliomas, so the head and neck ones, it's 2 to 20%. And as you said, you know, it's, it's pretty uncommon in my experience to see metastatic disease from paragangliomas. And this is an interesting final little sentence in the article. It says, biopsy, so excision or fine needle aspiration, is contraindicated in suspected paragangliomas until biochemical screening is negative for catecholamine excess due to the risk of catecholamine crisis and severe hypertension. I never really thought about that one before. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I only do kind of limited procedural things. So I've never been asked to biopsy one, but I will store that in the back of my head that if anyone ever asks me, I'll be like, no, hmm. I might, I might cause catecholamine crisis. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure whether it would apply to head and neck ones, given that they don't tend to yeah. secrete the catecholamines. Um, well, that's it, Sally. Well done. We've made it to the end of the article. I think this is the longest I've spoken about paragangliomas, like in, in a single setting. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> And your dog made it all the way to the end yes. as well. Uh, have you got time for one final random question? Shoot, let's do it. Okay. All right. Um, oh, this one's fun. Here we go. If you could have any superhero power, what would it be? My superpower. Oh, yeah. I'd love to be a dog for a day. I'd love to be a dog for a day. They <laughs> seem to have a really lovely kind of existence, lots of treats. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think my ability would be to control time. And it just feels like I just don't have enough hours in the day to get everything done I want to. And mm. especially, you know, and still being able to rest and recharge. And I think at the moment I'm racing around a lot between work and home and, you know, kids and dogs. And I'd love to have a little bit more time to be creative or just a little bit more time to sit and do nothing at all. So if you know a genie, let me know. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually saying just the other day that I wish a year was like 600 days long because particularly with the virtual conference coming around every year like it just seems too short a time like you finish one and then you already have to start preparing for the next virtual conference so if we could just make a year 600 days so that the conference is spaced out a little bit more that would be great uh, for me that, that well that would be great for me too I think I need all, all of the time to be able to you know produce something up to your standards for next year with the the rest of the convening team <laughs> It's going to be very exciting. Uh, So we've touched on Hamlet, uh, possums, upside down candles, dogs, and we even had time to chat a little bit about paragangliomas. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today, Sally, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing all your ideas for Radiopedia 2024 come to life. And no doubt we'll have you back on the podcast again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It's just been lovely to sit and chat this morning. Awesome. And I hope people find it useful. I'll see if I can dig up a little musical clip from Hades Town, where the liar gets mentioned. And uh, we'll play that as we transition to the outro and get the thoughts of Frank Gaylard. Another Gamma rant coming up, perhaps? I, I suspect not. Oh, goodness. But we'll see. <laughs> All right, Sally, I'll see you Thanks again so much, soon. Dixon. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye, puppy dog. Bye. Orpheus. Yes? Don't come on too strong. Come home with me. Who are you? The man who's going to marry you. Amorphius! Is he always like this? Yes. I'm Eurydice. Your name is like a melody. A singer? Is that what you are? I also play the lyre. Oh, a lyre and a player too. I've met too many men like you. Oh no, I'm not like that. 
He's not like any man you've met. Tell her what you're working on. go a little bit of Hades Town, a bit of Orpheus and Eurydice there. Uh, probably similar to when you wooed Natalie, I imagine, Frank. <laughs> Who are you? I'm, I'm the man who's going to marry you. Yeah, that was that was exactly how Some it worked. Smooth arrogance, I imagine. <laughs> now, before we get into your thoughts on uh, paragaliomas uh, and or possums, as we were reminded by Sally's favourite quote there there's always more to know and mm-hmm. knowledge changes over time and i think this is definitely true with regards to paragangliomas and pheochromosatoma terminology uh so my current theory if you will allow it gaylard um, and hopefully this is relatively correct is that paragangliomas tumors arising from the paraganglia you kind of divide them into parasympathetic paragangliomas that's the head and neck ones they're non-secreting and then there's sympathetic paragangliomas. These are found predominantly in the abdomen, but also mm. some places in the chest. And these are the secreting runs. The sympathetic paragangliomas that are located within the adrenal gland are called pheochromosatomas, and that's probably still the preferred term for them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the sympathetic paragangliomas located outside of the adrenal glands should probably just be referred to as sympathetic paragangliomas. And we should be avoiding the term extra adrenal pheochromosotoma because that adds some yep. confusion i think and then the other thing to phase out is the use of the term glomus when referring to the head and neck paragangliomas as that really is a misnomer as i described in the podcast so the ultimate upshot here gaylord is that i think a mini editorial project on the website is uh, is needed to make sure everything is as clear and consistent as yeah, possible. Absolutely. I mean, we do these periodically anyway and the trigger for doing them is exactly this sort of thing one person reading a review, mentioning something or a new classification comes out and then uh, we spring into action and do a yes. bit of weeding. And it is like weeding the garden. You never finish because it's not like you're working towards a steady state where everything mm. is perfect. It's constantly evolving. And uh, it's, it's quite a nice feeling to go and clean up a whole bunch, a little cluster of cases, a cluster of articles, tie them all together, make sure that they're really polished. Anything to talk about from that episode, Galen? Oh, there's so much. So firstly, for people who live in a wonderful country that is not plagued by (laughs) possums, you don't know what you're missing. People think they're cute. We had one in our roof as well, and it fell through the trapdoor that's in our laundry, and it was scurrying around. And this thing was massive, and they hiss, and they're horrible and they spray urine everywhere, they destroy your garden. They absolutely destroy them. And the rules in Melbourne, you can obviously not kill them. You can trap them, but you can only release them within 50 metres of your property. (laughs) Which means unless you're living on the top story of a sky rise building (laughs) or next to a fast moving river or something, 50 metres does nothing. My son suggested releasing them 50 metres straight up. That could work. (laughs) That would do it. That would work. But so we had a renovation done on the house, which included landscaping. I'll just say that renovation is an expensive way to get rid of a possum. No, no, this was before the possums. (laughs) And so we had the landscaping done as well with two pistachio trees. And we bought these nine foot tall, expensive pistachio trees. And within a week, not only had they eaten all the buds, They'd stripped the bark off the entire (laughs) tree so that we had these two sticks poking out of the ground. Yeah, don't like the possums. There's nothing cute about them. They shouldn't be protected. I mean, protected status should be for animals that you don't run over accidentally because there's so many of them crossing the street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Roadkill should not be counted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anything other than possums to talk about from from this episode? I like the politically correct, uh, inclusive changing from mother-in-law to parenting-in-law. But I would like to broaden this because I have had the pleasure of uh, having my mother stay with me for two, maybe three months while her house is being finished, being built. Mm -hmm. Boy, um, maybe it should (laughs) just be the relative sign. (laughs) I love my mother dearly. It's been wonderful. And she's realistically the only one of our four parents that would even get an invite. But um, 
it should be much more inclusive. Basically, anyone sign. Just anyone. get out of my house. Yeah, get out of my house. Let me be alone, falling over in my steps down That's near right. the beach. Peaceful. With my duress alarm. Just me and my duress alarm. And maybe dog a dog food. who can't talk. Yeah. <laughs> Eric speaks just about the right amount. <laughs> I did love that quote. Um, I mean, Hamlet's full of great quotes as well. And you mentioned Polonius being called something else before. The mm. advice he gives to his son... Uh, is his son Laertes? Yeah. And he gives him that speech about um, advice. And Polonius is such a buffoon and an idiot. But in that one scene, he actually gives really good advice. That's the famous uh, neither borrower nor lender be and the clothes yep. maketh the man. But there's he ends with it. I think it's, and this above all be true to thine self be true and it must follow as night the day that you cannot be false to any man. And it's like, that's great. I've been boring my kids with that advice. So I guess I'm an old <laughs> buffoon like Polonius as well. <laughs> I can't think of how to word it right now, but there's a witty multiple endocrine neoplasia to be or not to be comment to be made right here at this moment. Ah, yes. But I can't think of it. Perhaps people can write in and let me know how I could have worked that line into the podcast um, because it is time for you to let people know how they can get in contact with us, Frank. Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter. <laughs> that was an excellent segue. <laughs> we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And uh, you can email us, of course, at podcast.radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback. And just to clarify, I, I need mm-hmm. proof that I badmouth Bundaberg. I've even worked in Bundaberg. <laughs> and so I know it's not in the Northern Territory. I've Pretty sure it was Queensland. Did I say Northern Territory? Yeah, well, Uh. listen back to the episode. You can have a listen back and then we'll see. But, you know, we did get multiple emails. I think the the mayor of Bundaberg even was (laughs) was writing to me and uh, wanting your direct contact number. I was like, oh, no, I don't think we should give that out. For all you fine folk in Bundaberg, (laughs) I have worked in Bundaberg. It's a lovely place. I have fun. I love the beverages that you make. Yes, Bundaberg rum. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. Uh, Sally is the co-convener for Radiopedia 2024. And in doing so, if you become a supporter or an all-access pass holder, you'll be helping us to give free conference access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And, And what else can people do to help out, Frank? And don't forget that you can help us by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And we'll catch you all again. I'm wrapping this up very swiftly today, aren't I? And we'll yeah. catch you all again sometime <laughs> soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Stay right. Stay right. Careful on those stairs, oh, mate. God. Don't forget yeah, I that need some of those handrails. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See you in a couple of weeks. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.